morning, everyone. All right, I grew up in a family that played a lot of board games, which sounds really fun, except um, as the youngest person in the family, um, I was constantly getting run on by both my parents and my two older sisters. Any other younger siblings in the room, like you're the youngest and you just know what it feels like to just get beat up all the time by your older siblings. Okay, well, this is gonna be a little bit more like therapy for me today than I think it's gonna be benefit for you, and that's okay. So um, a typical family game night would consist of like, we'd play a game like Taboo or uh, Spoons, the game of life, shoots and ladders even, like it, like it didn't matter what game it was. Um, I would just like get piled on, especially by my sisters. And I'll tell you, no game, no game had the ability to just like completely ruin my day more than this one right here, okay? Any other, any other Monopoly haters in the room? Okay, I know this is Disney Monopoly, um, and it looks sweet, but it is not. Like, Monopoly's been known to, like even Mother Teresa would say words that would have to get bleeped out on like public radio, okay? Um, like, she would probably cut her family off like during a game of Monopoly. I'm just saying, like, it's, it's a pretty scary thing. And I'm telling you, my sisters, my sisters, they were ruthless, okay? Like, they were the types of people that, like, we would be playing Monopoly, and they would talk me into really bad trades, you know? Like, they'd be like, hey, you know what? Why don't you just let me take, you know, Boardwalk for, like, 50 bucks? And as the youngest kid, I'd be like, okay, if that's what's needed. You know, they would be the ones that would like, they would tell me when to make the wrong decision. Like, no, you shouldn't buy that. Like, you should just let that one pass. And like, at the end of the game, even if I might have like more cash on hand, they would have most of the board, all the assets, and they would, they'd pre they'd pretty much like win every single time. And the thing is like about Monopoly, if you're gonna be good at it, like you gotta know, you gotta know how to manage money well, right? Like you need to know when to like buy properties, when to put houses on it. You need to know when you need to start angling to start assembling the entire block. You gotta know things about like when to mortgage a property so that you can like participate in the auction that's happening. Like there's all sorts of advanced strategies that even though there's a little bit of luck with the roll of the dice, there's a lot of strategy that's involved in Monopoly. And what the problem is, is that some of us grew up and we never quit playing Monopoly, right? Like we live our life by the rules of Monopoly where we say, get more. And getting more means you need to leave less for other people. And ultimately, at the end of everything, the person with the most, well, that's, that's the real winner. Now, is that a picture of what life is all about? Now, I know you want to say no, but have you ever walked into a high school reunion and you start feeling the silent judgment and the rankings of how successful people are based off of the rules of Monopoly? Or have you ever been in a conversation about family members and Maybe you've heard your mom on the phone talking to her sister and the way that she's describing other members of the family talks about net worth almost the same as their character. I know we wanna say no, but a lot of the times we still continue to live by the rules of Monopoly. So is today gonna to be about money? Well, yes, but also no, because it's way, way more than that. See, and some of you might be cringing right now, because I get it, you know, churches start talking about money, people get a little funny, and some of you are thinking like, oh, you know, churches, they talk way too much about money, and I understand that tension, uh, but you know, the Bible actually talks a lot about money as well. Um, like, for example, uh, did you know that there are 500 verses in the Bible about prayer? And we think we could all agree, like, prayer is a pretty important part of faith, isn't it? Like, talking to God. But there are 2,300 verses 
about money and possessions. Now, is money and possessions, is it four and a half times more like important than prayer? I don't know. Like, I, don't, I don't wanna make that judgment, but um, maybe the Bible talks so much about money because we have such a hard time changing our minds on the subject. You know, Jesus, like, it's not just like a Bible thing. This is also a Jesus thing. Jesus talked a lot about money and possessions. In fact, if we talked about money as much as Jesus did, we would have to devote at least seven minutes to every single sermon talking about money. Um, or we'd have to spend at least one full sermon every month talking about the subject. Um, and the, one of the reasons why I think that they talk about, the, about possessions and money so often in the Bible is there's probably not a greater diagnostic for the health of your heart than your transaction history, right? Like if you were to go through and look about where the money has gone in your life, it probably really reveals what do you value? So these are just some questions just to think about. What are some of the things that I'm willing to go into debt for? Think about this question. What are, what are the things that are so important to you that if you're a budgeter, it makes a line item on the spreadsheet? Like you just know like, I need to make sure I save money for this. Here's another question to think about. What are some things that you just refuse to spend money on? Like you, you will not spend a single dollar for this. And when you trace it all, what you start to learn is that it really reveals your value system. See, what we do is we, we praise with our voices, but we, oft, we often worship with our wallets. You know, here's some other uh, thoughts about money that you just might resonate with. Um, Zig Ziglar, the author, said this. He's a, he said, money isn't everything, but it's right up there with oxygen. John Nelson said this. He said, I'm having a hard time these days reconciling my net income with my gross habits. Henry Youngman, he said this. He said, you know, I actually have all the money I need if I die by 4 p.m. tomorrow afternoon, okay? Um, some of you are like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Like, this is, this is one of my favorites. Uh, Robert Orban, uh, he wrote this. He said, you know, every morning I get up and I check Fortune's Richest Americans. If I'm not on the list, I go to work that day. And I get it. I get the tension in the room. Like, you're saying, well, hey, money is not everything. And I totally agree with that. Money in and of itself is limited in being able to actually reveal what's happening beneath the, the surface level of your heart. But, you know, money also has, like, a, a companion to it that really reveals what we value and what we think is important in this world. And that's our, that's our calendar. See, what happens is we look at our time and the way that you distribute how you spend your time also reveals exactly what's happening inside of your heart. You know, it's so funny too, is that here we are in 2019 and there's this interesting thing happening where, where we can actually spend money to free up more time. That's why some of you are, are just finding all these different time-saving things in your life. And just, just contrast that for a second for how life would have been 100, 200, 300 years ago. I mean, there was a time in our world where doing laundry was an all-day thing. Like, you'd have to go down to the river and, like, you know, run it against a rock, I guess. I don't know how to clean clothes without a washing machine. But, like, there was a time when you would spend all day just doing laundry. There was a time when making a meal was several hours every single day. But now you can just go to your refrigerator and, like, heat it up in a microwave, and within seconds, you have something to eat. You know, we have all these other, we have all these other, like, time-saving things. Um, you might not even go to stores anymore. You might buy everything online. 
In fact, even if you do have to go to the store, there's this new feature where you can order it, stay in your car, and somebody will walk it to your door. Like, you don't even have to go in anymore. Isn't that amazing? You don't even have to go out to eat. You can Uber Eats all the food you've ever wanted to your home. All at the touch of a button. It's amazing. You know, it's funny, in 1967, there was a, uh, uh, an expert testimony that was given to the U.S. Senate and said because of all the labor-saving technology that was being invented even as early as 1967, experts predicted that within a generation, 20 to 30 years, the average American would only work 30 hours a week, 30 weeks a year. Okay, let's just take a quick survey. How many of you are saying, I just have way too much time on my hands. Like, I just feel like I, I don't know what to do with all the time that I've got, right? Like, okay, that's what I thought. Very few of you really feel like you just have way more time than, than needs. You know, a sociologist recently did a survey, and they asked a simple question to people. If you had one extra hour every day, okay? It's so like your, count, your, your clock is 25 hours. It's not 24. What are you going to do with that one extra hour? And do you know what that number one answer was? Sleep. The number one answer was sleep. And why is that? We're busy. We try and cram a lot into our day. We try and cram a lot into our month and our year and our decades. So this morning, I want to tell you a story. And I, I want you to be able to hear this through just like a truly human lens. See, there was this man where he did whatever it took to succeed. And for him, it took everything. He would work 12 to 14 hours every single day. He worked the weekends. He was constantly in board meetings. And uh, if he wasn't at something like that, he was out networking. Like he was, he was constantly in the chambers of commerce meeting and uh, trying to find other contacts for his business. And when he wasn't working, like those rare times when he wasn't working, it was still on his mind. It wasn't so much an occupation as it was a preoccupation. And his wife would tell him, you need to slow down. Like, you're going you're gonna to miss all of your kids' childhoods. And, like, he had a vague awareness of this. And in his defense, like, he would think about it every now and then. And he would think about the times he was missing and the amount of, the amount of memories that he wasn't going to make. And every now and then his kids would come to him and they would complain that he wouldn't stop and play with them or that he wouldn't play catch, help them with their homework. But over time... Those requests just fell in deaf ears, and eventually they stopped altogether, and they no longer even seemed like an expectation, and so they slipped off of his radar. And he would constantly tell himself, in six months, things are going to slow down, and then I can finally start doing all these things. But six months would come, and they would go, and someday would never come. But he would tell himself, just because when his conscience would start to bother him, he would, he would, just, tell him, he would just tell himself, I'm doing this for them. Like, I'm doing, this, I'm doing this for their sake. Then one morning around 1 a.m., he kind of wakes up and he has, this, he has this tightness in his chest. Small pain starts to bother him. And that next morning, he immediately schedules an appointment with a doctor. And he goes in and he discovers he has a slight heart attack. Among other things, he also found out he had high cholesterol, that his blood pressure was high, and that he needed to make some serious changes in his routine. So he did. He, he makes the changes, and for a while, he, he really saw some progress. He bought expensive, sophisticated equipment to track all of his vitals. 
And over time, he works on it, and his symptoms, they seem to go away. But with his symptoms disappearing, his motivation to change his behavior also disappears. And he would tell himself, in six months, I can slow down. Things can change then. At times he recognized his life was out of balance, and occasionally he thought about how he should be thinking more about God and maybe even being in church, but, you know, Sundays were his only days to crash. And besides, he can believe without going to church. Like, he, he, he believes that. So um, his thought process was when things slow down, someday when things slow down, I'll finally start working on these things. But then one day he goes in the office and an opportunity has presented itself. Things in his industry are booming. Like they've never been better than they currently are. And he's thinking, this is our chance. If we catch this wave, we're going to be set for life. This man is possessed. He pours everything he's got. He devotes every waking moment to this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Now he goes to a home and he tells his wife, you know what this means, don't you? Like, once I'm finished with this next chapter, we can relax. Because our future is going to be secure. We're not going to have to worry about money anymore. We're going to be set for life. But she's heard this story before, so she doesn't really get her hopes up. That next chapter, it, it closed, and he was just as successful as he dreamed. But his pace did not stop. See, success led to more success. And about 11 o'clock one night, his wife decides that she's finally going to bed. And she, she asks him, hey, are you coming with me? And behind the keyboard of his laptop, he, he tells her, no, uh, I'm going to stay up just a little while longer. And so she heads up and she goes to sleep. Something happens in the middle of the night, stirs her from, from her sleep, and she rolls over and she notices her husband is not in the bed. And she's a little annoyed, a little put off by this, so she gets up and she heads downstairs, and there he is, still behind his laptop. She thinks, he would rather fall asleep behind his computer than go to bed with me. What is this, a kid? So she goes over to him and she touches his skin, and it's cold to the touch. And she steps back. She tries checking for a pulse. She can't find one. She immediately calls the ambulance. The paramedics show up, and he's dead. Now, it was a major story. Obituaries were written in Forbes and the Wall Street Journal. It became a national news story. And it's too bad that he was, he was dead, because he would have loved to read what they wrote about him. When they hosted the memorial service, the whole community was there. His company, they built a memorial to him at their office. And they put these inspiring words on it. It said, innovator, entrepreneur, visionary, success. And especially that last word, because he gave his life for it. Success. And they buried his body, they put up the marker, and they all went home. And when it was dark, and no one was present to observe, and the unseen and the unheard, the angel of God comes to the cemetery, and he comes to this grave, and there he traces with one finger the single word that God would use to describe and assess this man's life. And do you know what it was? It was fool. Now, this story is actually really an adaptation of a story that Jesus tells 
in Luke chapter 12. And we're going to have it here on the screen, but if you'd like to look at it in your own Bible, um, if you flip to the middle and start going to the right, you're eventually going to find the book of Luke. If you're on a device, you can start scrolling down to the bottom third of books. It's the third book of the New Testament. But this is Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 16. And this is what Jesus says, the story that he tells. He says, A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, What should I do? I don't have room for my, all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. Then I'm going to have room enough to sort all my wheat and all my other goods. And I'm going to sit back and I'm going to say to myself, My friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, you're going to die this very night. Then who's going to get everything that you worked for? Verse 21 says, Yes, a person's a fool to store up earthly wealth, but, have, but not have a rich relationship with God. And I think Jesus here in the story is making a tragically accurate diagnosis. Because all this man's entrepreneurial brilliance, through all the cost-benefit analysis that he used to try and dictate how he was going to use his life, all the cash flow projections, there was one scenario he just never seemed to really quite account for. And it was death. He never thought that eventually all of this is going to come to an end. Now, I can't read a story like this and not just have some of these lessons pop out at me. And so this first one's not necessarily a lesson that I'm pulling straight from here, but it just is a disclaimer that I want to make sure that we all understand as we read a story like this. And it's, it's this one right here. It's money and wealth, just, you know, they're not evil, okay? Like, that is not the moral of this story. See, money is amoral, which means it's neither good nor bad. It's money and wealth in the hands of an evil person can be used for evil. And money and wealth in the hands of a good person can be used for good. It's a lot like gasoline. Like gasoline can either be used to propel you hundreds of miles away, or it can burn down your entire garage. Like you can choose to use it however you want. See, this man, he wasn't foolish in the story because he had money and because he was successful. See, he was foolish because of what he chose to use that money on. Here's a reminder I think that we all just need. What we accumulate here in this life it's not permanent I know this seems like such a painfully obvious statement but we rarely actually live life with this in mind don't we like I don't know about you I, I constantly have a list of things that I know I want like on Amazon I have my wish list and it's just, it's just full of things that I just keep planning on and thinking about like man when am I going to add this when am I going to add this and over time if I allow my focus if you go solely on like, it's just getting the next thing. It's just buying that one next thing. It's, it's just getting more and more and more. I lose sight of everything else that's around me, and I forget. It's all temporary. What we do is we get and we collect until we run out of space, and then we go and find one of those self-storage places so we can put more stuff away. And I'm like, have you ever watched an episode of Hoarders and just thought, man, who does this? We do this, don't we? We just collect and we collect and we collect. You know, Jesus actually once said this in, in Matthew 6, 19. He says, he says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moss eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal because it's temporary. He says, store your treasures in heaven where moss and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. But the reason why he said this all comes, all comes to this point right here in verse 21. He says, wherever your treasure is, 
there the desires of your heart will also be. See, what it comes down to when it's money and possessions and wealth, it's a question of values. You invest in what you value. You praise with your voice, but largely you worship with your wallet and your time. Which is why I feel like we just need to be reminded of number three. Someday might be a myth. Someday might be a myth. This is not me advocating for you not to plan for life. This isn't me saying, like, don't invest in retirement. I think that's wise. I think that's a smart thing to do. But this is a plea for me just to remind you of the following things. If you're just constantly thinking, hey, six months from now, things will get better. And in just a month's time, like, things will finally slow down. I I can get back to the things that are actually important in life. What if someday never comes? Like, what if... What if it's so far away, you never actually get there? For the man in this story, he kept telling himself six months from now, six months from now, six months from now. And when it finally came, he was gone. He died. Here's another question just to consider. If someday is your goal, what if the person you become to get there won't allow you to enjoy it once you do? You see, what you're doing is you're creating habits and muscle memory and like a rhythm to your life, that if you're not careful, when things could slow down, your RPMs will be going so strong, you'll never actually be able to take a step back. Like what if you, what if you won't allow yourself to slow down because your identity is wrapped up in the success that you have at your job or the success that you had in life? What if, what if your identity is so closely aligned with these things that to walk away from it seems to be turning away from who you believe that you actually are. And the whole time you kept telling yourself, eventually, I can slow down. But what if someday's a myth? Here's something to think about. What if nobody wants to be around you when someday finally arrives? Like, what if you've neglected your friends and you've neglected your family so much in pursuit of something that when someday actually gets there, there's nobody to slow down with? Here's the fourth thing I want you to walk away with this morning. Greed comes in different shapes and sizes. In the lead up to the story, here's actually what Jesus said in verse 15 of Luke chapter 12. He says, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. I just want to remind you, greed is not a rich person problem. Greed is saying, I deserve more. Notice that's a little different from, you know, hey, I I would like more. See, you can be greedy with your time. You can be greedy with relationships. You can be greedy with your job. And when you're the star of the show, you're going to step on people to get, get, get. And here's what I've been, here's why I've spent the last 20 minutes telling this story and talking about all of this. For so many of us, we're so far from living our best lives due to the heart disease of greed and covetousness. See, for the last several weeks, we've been slowly walking through this list from Galatians 5, 22, and 23, which sometimes is referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. And we've been taking each one of those words and trying to break it apart and see, is God actually producing these things in our lives? Because if we're truly healthy and if we're truly walking with God, over time, the way that God would describe you, the way other people would describe you would be right in step with that entire list. And today we're talking about the word goodness. 
We're talking about the word goodness. And if you're looking for me to give a definition for goodness, it's going to completely reshape the way that you've seen that word and how you define it. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to do that for you today. See, because goodness is exactly what you would expect it to be. It's, it's moral and it's spiritual excellence manifested in kindness. Here's another way to think about it. It's love in action. Goodness is love in action. And I don't want you to hear goodness and only hear it as like being good, like the way that you, maybe your mom and dad would leave you at the house when you were a kid and they'd say, hey, be good, right? Like, and all that meant was don't do bad things, right? Like that's, that's how a lot of people define good. Like I'm good if I just don't do bad things. But there's a huge difference between being good and doing good. And the reason why we just spent the last 25 minutes talking about greed and covetousness and trying to protect and get, 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 get is because the greatest enemy to goodness, love and action in your life is greed and covetousness. See, doing good means giving. I mean, think about it. Any time in your life that somebody's ever been good to you, they have given you something. Maybe it was your teacher who let you hang out a little bit later in class after everybody else had left the room, where they gave you their time to explain it and you finally got it. Maybe it was that aunt who found out that you you got that speeding ticket and you could not afford it. And she said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the money that you need to pay for it. Maybe it's that Sunday school teacher who gave their time every single Sunday to invest into you. Maybe it was your mom and dad, maybe it was your spouse. I don't know who it is. But everybody who's truly done good to you, they have given you something. Doing good means giving. And see, the reason why this is so important to us, see, we follow a God who is declared over and over and over in scriptures as good. And to say that God is good means that God is always acting in accordance with what is right, what is true, what's good. It, yes, it means that he, he stays away from the things that are bad, like there, he is not... Uh, he is not polluted by any kind of uh, ill motivations or bad actions. But there's a whole other part to this as well. It's his goodness towards us. The Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all the generations. That's Psalm 105. At creation in the garden, God looked at everything he made and said, it is good. James 1.17 says, every good gift comes from above. But there's a whole other piece of this as well. It's God's goodness towards us. See, there's this belief that we have that says that from the moment you were conceived, from the moment you were born, from the moment you took your first breath, you were separated from God. And here's the thing, is that the descriptions in the Bible, it's not just that like, hey, you were at odds with God, like you were just like kept in an arm's length and you know, you just had like this, you know, detente where you just weren't talking to each other. It actually describes us that we were enemies with God. That there's a part of us that, that wants to resist him and wants to, to flee from him and wants to do the wrong thing when he's asked us to do the right thing. 
but God in his goodness. And God in his goodness towards us said that even when you are at odds, even when you would be my enemy, even when we have so much that keeps us apart, I'm going to love you, I'm going to be kind to you, and I'm going to be good to you. And it's manifested in, in Jesus himself, who came down to earth and lived amongst us, and eventually was killed and took our place for all the mistakes and all the sins that we've made. And he paid the price when, when we should have been the ones, but his goodness took him to the cross. And his goodness put him in the grave. And his goodness towards us brought him back from the dead. And he's brought us back into relationship with him. See, that's the God that we see described in the Bible. But when we talk about what does it look like for us to be good, See, there is being good to your kids. There is being good to your family. There is being good to your friends. But then there's a whole other level of love. It's being good to people that disagree with you. It's being good to people who are your enemies. It's being good to people that would say, I don't like you. But the greatest enemy to goodness in your life it comes when you live by the, life, by the life rules of monopoly, where it's all about getting, getting, getting. Because you cannot do good without giving. And as long as you live your life getting, 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 you're going to miss it. See, since I was a kid, I, I learned to actually play Monopoly. It took me a little bit of time, but I finally figured out. I, I took my friends, and um, I, would, I would learn how to, you know, develop the right strategies and the right skills. And I'm just going to tell you right now that over time, I, I got okay at it. And slowly but surely, I would start to, like, just enforce my will against all of these unsuspecting people. And I would, I would find myself... Like exacting the revenge that I should have been giving to my sisters, but I just didn't have the courage for, against them. And I would muster all my energy and I would destroy them financially, psychologically. I would just, I would just beat them to no end in a game like Monopoly. And you know what would happen is, as I would finish these and all of that, all of that pride would start to come back up. I was thinking like, man, I just, you know, if I could have just done this when I was seven. Um, as all that would start to come up, I would think to myself, I just want to memorialize this moment, right? As the game sits out there in the middle of the table, I would just think like, man, if we could just bronze this, if we could just make a little memorial on the table just to remind everybody just of my Monopoly brilliance, like that would be amazing. But you know, the same thing happens at the end of every game of Monopoly. That no matter what, no matter who you're playing with, it doesn't matter if it's with your family or with your friends or, you know, with just somebody random that you meet at a summer camp. At the end of the game, You take all the pieces, you put them back in the bags, you take all the cards, you stack them back up, you take the board, you fold it back up, and it all goes back in the box. This is actually how Monopoly plays out. And just as a reminder, we are foolish if we think that it just, it goes on forever. We're foolish to think that getting, getting, getting Leaving less for everybody else and having the most at the end means that we've won the game. 
we're missing the point if that's how we live our life. You know, the Bible describes that there's only two things that are going to be permanent. Only two things that, that will actually matter once we leave this life. One is our relationship with God. The second is people. And we are not foolish to say, how can I invest more of my time, more of my resources into my relationship with God and in my relationship with people? The greatest thing that we can do is invest into God, our relationship with Him, what He is doing with other people. And frankly, we're here today because of the good news of the gospel. The good news that God loves us so much that He gave His only Son for every single one of us. That's the good news. So let me pray for us today. God, I'm asking that you would continue to show us what it means to be good, that you would continue to produce inside every single one of us these attributes that, that ultimately make a difference in our world. God, I pray that, that as we uh, venture into our week, that we'd be reminded of your goodness towards us and that, God, that we wouldn't have a litmus test for who we show goodness to. And so, Lord, I pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we are, uh, we're in the middle of a, of a campaign right now, and in fact, our series is called Heart for Home, but we're also in the middle of a resource initiative that's called Heart for Home, uh, and uh, one of the big pieces of this is our global compassion um, uh, initiatives that, that we have going out, so I would like you guys to watch this. The Compassion Ministry strategy here at Crosspoint is centered around one word, go. We believe that every Crosspointer is called to lead people to find and follow Jesus, both here in our community and around the world. It's ordinary people empowered by the Holy Spirit, fulfilling God's mission wherever they are. We're pleased to let you know that today we have opened registration for our 2020 Compassion Trips. We're gonna to go to Mexico and we're gonna build homes for people. We're gonna visit the feeding center at Central Shalom Church. And we're going to be God's hands and feet there in Mexico. We're gonna to go to Guatemala and we're gonna spend time at the orphanage that Crosspointers had the privilege of helping construct a few years ago and, and spend time with the kids there. We're gonna visit feeding centers. We're gonna educate and train local families and leaders on the subject of adoption because we know that there's a huge need for that there. We're also going to go to Israel and that's not so much a mission trip as much as it is a Holy Land tour. And so we wanna encourage you to go with us there too. And then finally, we're going to the Philippines in 2021 and registration for that trip will open up very soon. We believe that if our lives are to be more like Jesus, then our life's mission must include his mission. So join us on one of these compassion trips coming up in 2020. You can visit www.crosspoint.com slash compassion for more information, all of the details, and you can register for a trip right there. Don't miss out on what God wants to do in and through you as we lead people to find and follow Jesus. If you would like uh, to sign up for one of those trips, it's, it's love and action, uh, both here locally and globally. You can do that at crosspoint.com slash compassion. At this time, I'd like to invite our ushers to the front as we prepare to receive our offering. Uh, and just so you know, if this is your very first time here, you are under no obligation to give. Uh, this is something that we do for, um, uh, for people who call Crosspoint home. And uh, if you'd like to know how to give, uh, you can look at the screen right here. We have uh, a way to give online, as well as always in, your service, uh, in the service with the envelope. Um, 
But, but Crosspoint, I just want you to know um, that I love you. I just believe that God has so much in store for us within the next, uh, within the next year. That, that God's on the move and that he's making a huge difference. And one of the ways that we're able to tangibly see uh, God's love and God's goodness unleashed here in our community is when you give. Also this time, I'd like you to, to pull out your connection cards. Uh, we believe that there's power and you take next steps. And on the back side, we have next steps for you to take today. Uh, you might notice that you can focus on James 117. There's a card in your program to focus on this week. Um, you can look to show goodness this week, and as well as you can pray about your involvement in our Heart for Home initiative. But no matter who you are, no matter where you're at in your journey with God, I just invite you to take a next step. No matter what it is, whether it's, whether it's one step, five steps, where you're going on a full run, or you're just on a, you're just on a slow walk. Um, I believe that God has a better tomorrow for you than you're today. So let me pray for us, and then we'll continue with singing, and you can drop your offering in the bucket as it's passed by. So God, thank you just for your goodness. I pray that we would see, um, that we would see more lives changed because of your incredible love. The God, that we would see people who are far from you um, enter into a relationship with you. The God, that we would see uh, people who, who are hungry fed because of the generosity of Crosspoint Church. God, I pray that the people who are, who are homeless in the, sea, in, the, in the streets of Tijuana, they would find a home within this next year because of the generosity of people at Crosspoint. God, I pray for the, uh, the children in the Philippines and Guatemala and Kenya. We're gonna find hope because of a relationship that's developed because of the generosity of people at Crosspoint. So God, I pray that this church would take their next steps and the God that we would see you move. And I pray in your name.